you're listening to NRI Woman, the show where we chat with women of Indian origin living abroad. We hope in sharing these stories, you are inspired, learn something new, and bring to light issues that aren't usually spoken about, providing you with hope and a connection with others who've been through something similar. I'm Bettina. And I'm Lenora. Addiction is a complex condition. According to the American Psychiatric Association, it's a brain disease that is manifested by compulsive substance use, despite harmful consequences. People with addiction have an intense focus on using a certain substance, such as alcohol or drugs, to the point that it takes over their life. And our guest today has first-hand experience of that. We're chatting with a gentle but very strong Mahek Gedwani. She's the youngest of three and was born and raised in Hong Kong. She's currently working as a holistic addiction recovery coach and is in long-term recovery from addiction herself. She's here to share her story, to help others understand this disease better, and hopefully break the taboo and the shame associated with talking, seeking, and providing help for addiction. So what was life like growing up for Mahek? I feel like I had a traditional upbringing as so far as, you know, like a modern modernized, westernized community. Um, I do have two older sisters uh, who are quite a bit older than me, uh, nine years and 13 years. Um, so when I, when I came, when I became part of my family, there was already, there was already like a whole system happening. There was already a lot going on. Um, and they're all, you know, my, my mom and my sisters, they're big characters. Um, so coming into that, I feel like I, I didn't find my voice, especially as a child. Meg was shy by nature, and she struggled to find her voice outside her home too. There, there is a really big Indian community in Hong Kong. Uh, and I, I grew up in the new territories, so like the suburbs of India. Of India, no, the suburbs of Hong Kong. Um, and the school I went to was mostly Chinese people and expats. Uh, so those were the people I grew up with. Those were, those were my friends. It was, it was definitely a challenge. Um, I definitely felt different. And I know that was a big theme throughout primary school. Um, and kindergarten, I guess particularly, is where I first felt it. Because the, the kids at that age, their English wasn't very good. And I wasn't able to, you know, I wasn't able to have a conversation. And I did feel really outside. Mehek was struggling to fit in. And her shy and quiet nature made her the perfect target for bullies at school. I was bullied at school. I kept it to myself. Um, and I guess it was like, brought to my attention that um, there's an understanding, you know, within kids that if I told someone, it might have gotten worse. If I told my parents, they might have complained to the school and then the kids would have got told off and perhaps I would have felt more isolated. So I didn't. I didn't tell anyone. Um, and, you know, being a shy child, I wasn't in the practice of sharing, sharing what was going on for me, my thoughts feelings, experiences, um, it was quite quiet as a kid. There are many who might share the similarity with Mahek, growing up as a quiet child who didn't quite fit in 
However, it was in her early teens that Mehik's life took a path less traveled. I started when I was 12. Um, I think I had my first drink around this time as well. I had my first drink, I do remember it quite clearly, with my, or at least it was the first, my first sip of alcohol was with my family at, um, I think it was my mom's birthday, we'd gone out for dinner. Um, so that was the, my first sip of alcohol. Uh, my first interaction with drugs, I think, was a little, just a little bit before that. And it wasn't anything that appeared as a drug to me. It was a muscle relaxant, an aerosol spray uh, that contained, contained, it was like one of those after sports sprays that you spray on your, your tired muscles to help them, you know, recover from sport. Um, so what my friends were doing was that they were spraying this stuff on their sleeves and sucking it up, and it would create like a two to three minute high. Uh, we used to call it Worry. That was the name of the spray, and it would create oh, it create a sensation of um, <clears throat> feeling like hearing bells in my head. Uh, it was it was quite intense. The feeling was quite intense. Uh, my vision would go kind of flop-sidey. Um, my mind would do all sorts of things. And for those, it lasted about three minutes. For those three minutes, it wasn't, I wasn't in the world. I wasn't in my body. I was somewhere else. Um, I was experiencing something really intense in my mind. And I think that intensity created a sense of like excitement and euphoria for me and my friends. Like uh, coming, you know, coming out of that three minutes and <laughs> and the interaction would be like, like, whoa, wow, what was that? The sensations that Mehak felt after doing worry was nothing like she had experienced before. And also for the first time, she felt like she fit in. The repercussions of her actions didn't cross her mind. After all, she was only 13, and we've all done some foolish things in our teens. The first time she thought that maybe what she was doing was not so typical was when she did worry on her own, in her room, alone. There was no peer pressure, and she did it purely for the high. And from there, it escalated onto other drugs. I started doing ketamine the year after the worry. And I remember there was, there was four of us in a shisha bar. Um, and we, we all went into the bathroom. And I remember asking why why we all had to go into this tiny little bathroom and there were some like protest and like questioning and what's going on why are we doing this um just come just come just come okay so we're in the bathroom i'm standing there i'm a little scared i'm a little angry no one's giving me an answer um and now i'm in a tiny bathroom and i'm scared um so i'm standing there and yeah and then one thing led to the next, and there was some white powder. Um, 
and they wanted to share it. And I guess I had a mixture of fear and not knowing what to do and, and curiosity as well. Uh, yeah. And so I tried it. I tried it. Um, and similar to the worry, the worry started off as I tried it once. Um, I tried it once and it, and everyone in that moment started laughing and all the attention and all the eyes were on me. And it was the first time that whole day. Um, remember I was a, I was a child that found it difficult to share. Um, and have a voice. And so it was the first time that whole day in a group of, I don't know, 12 people, maybe 12, 15 people, um, that all eyes were on me. And so that was my first experience. That was my association with it. Um, and it went from that one time to, okay, it was at someone's house in the next month. And I thought to myself, I've done it once. It was fine. Um, it was fine, and, and then it slowly became, like the frequency of it just increased quite naturally and progressively over time. Um, and a similar thing happened with the ketamine. Ketamine is a medication mainly used for starting and maintaining anesthesia. It induces a trance-like state while providing pain relief, sedation, and memory loss. Mac was using it for two to three years before she stopped. And by that time, her brain had undergone long-term changes. It's been scientifically proven that drugs, while they mimic the brain's own chemicals, they don't activate neurons in the same way as a natural neurotransmitter. And they lead to abnormal messages being sent through the network, resulting in poor reasoning and no real control over choices. One of my best friends, she had a bad experience with the ketamine. And it was enough for me to say, I'm not going to do this anymore. Um, and what happened during that transition was I stopped doing ketamine. I started to drink more um, and I started to smoke marijuana. And my thought process with the marijuana was um, I thought, wow, this is so much more relaxed. Um, it's, you know, socially acceptable in a lot of places. Um, I can do it with my friends. I can do it a lot more casually. I don't have to be out in a bar or a club. And once again, I also thought, oh, I'll just do it here and there, now and then. Um, and this seems nice. This seems like a better lifestyle for me. And once again, I didn't, I didn't imagine or think that it was going to progress to where it did. Addiction can be one of the most difficult diseases to recognize especially in the beginning. The fact is, one can't always recognize it just by looking at someone. One of the difficulties in recognizing addiction stems from secrecy. Those in active addiction are often good at hiding their behavior from their families and friends. The belief that most parents have that addiction is a far-off distant problem that could not affect their family does not help. So unless one is actively looking for signs, it's hard for those around to see them. And by the time the problem is evident, the child unfortunately may be trapped in addiction, as it was the case for Mehek's family. I started drinking more um, and 
it was really. It became quite open. It was really open in my family. I have two older sisters. Hong Kong has a big, you know, party culture, and a lot of modern. I mean, the modern world has a lot of alcohol in it, and so there was an acceptance and understanding that, as a modern teenager, I would eventually start drinking. Their thinking was,、um, that at least they know about it. At least they, at least they know about it. At least they're in on it. Or they understood. They knew. They had awareness. Now I started much earlier than they wanted me to, and at that point they didn't have much control over that. When I was fifteen, I、uh, I had my first blackout. So it was the first time I I drank to the point where I didn't remember what happened. And my dad my dad came to pick me up,、um, and it's a very embarrassing story. But I did throw up in his car, and I did wake up the next morning and have a very painful day. Um, and so that was my first experience of a hangover, and I know at that point my my dad wasn't happy、um, with the way I was drinking. He I knew he wasn't happy with how much I was going out, and and there was also an acceptance, or he was being told that you know this is this is modern world and this is what people do.、Um, And so that's that's what he was receiving in response. So I know at that age, he didn't like the way it was going. However, it still seemed, or at least he was being told that it was relatively normal,、um, and to just like pipe down and、uh, let it be as it was. All of this was new territory for both Meg and her family. She was stuck in a situation she couldn't get out of, but not willing to receive help at the same time. More so, her family had to deal with emotional baggage of what they could have done differently, whilst trying to preserve their confidence and find a way to help Mahek. I have a really clear story of、um, one evening going up to the roof. I think after like a heated discussion with my family, and I'm thinking to myself, thinking to myself, don't, don't do this right now. Like don't. Don't smoke that joint. Like it's 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 not going to be helpful to your family. It's not going to be helpful to you. Just don't do it. Just don't do it right now. And I'm sitting there,、um, and my hands are starting to roll up this joint,、um, and these thoughts are going through my head. And my head is is saying no,、um, and it's starting to scream it louder and louder. And I eventually put the joint in my mouth. Um, and it's screaming, and I take the lighter to it, and my mind is going no. And then I lit it, and I remember in that moment, I remember tears coming down、uh, my cheeks. And over the last summer before I went to rehab, I had gone to my mom's room, my mom's room,、um, on more than one occasion, asking her for help and saying, I don't know what's happening. I don't know why it is this way. I don't understand it. I'm in a lot of pain. I don't get it. Please help me. And I'd wake up the next morning. <laughs> I'd wake up the next morning. I'd feel better. And when she'd come to me for help with help, I wouldn't want to take it. That willingness wouldn't be there. And then this this cycle, yeah, this cycle went on. And I feel like that's really characteristic of addiction. 
For two years, her family tried different ways to help her out by intervening, but Mehek wouldn't budge. And then, an opportunity happened when Mehek was studying at university in the UK. She had failed her first year and hadn't been accepted for a second year in college. But Mehek didn't know that when she flew back to the UK after the summer. And the university told me, you know, the situation, and uh, I didn't tell my family. Eventually, the school and my family spoke to each other, and what happened shortly after that was my dad and my sister flew over. The university had called me in, and I was really excited that the school called me in. I thought, oh, maybe they're giving me a second chance. I'd been really trying to convince them to. Um, so I got all excited this morning and I went into the university, went into the office. Um, I opened the door and I see my dad and my sister. And my first reaction was to shut the door straight away and walk, walk out. After a little bit of time, a little bit of dispute, a little bit of conversation, um, I went in to see the, the university therapist, psychologist, and um, we had a conversation that I really enjoyed, that really calmed me down, I felt understood. Um, so when I walked out of the therapist's office, my family said to me, they said, oh, they said, we're glad you, you like speaking to the therapist. If you want to continue doing that, then we need to go get a referral from a doctor. And so they convinced me that the next morning we were going to go do that. So the next morning I get in the car um, and we arrive at this really beautiful looking building. And I think to myself, this doesn't look like a doctor's office. And I said to myself in my mind, I said, okay, but we're in England. There's lots of beautiful buildings here. You know, there's lots of beautiful, old-looking buildings. Maybe it is a, a small doctor's office, small little hospital. So I go inside and I realize it's a rehab. Meg's first reaction was to run away from there, but she knew that was not possible. So she pleaded with her sister. Well, what I said to her was, let me have the weekend, you know, let me have the weekend and I'll come back on Monday. And in my mind, I was thinking, you know, one last hurrah. And then my sister said to me, if I let you go now, I don't know. I don't know if, if you'll ever come back or if it'll take 10 or 15 years. Um, and I guess a part of me felt it was like, it was like I was forced into a surrender. Uh, a part of me felt defeated. And I was also really tired. I was really tired of fighting. I didn't know where I was. I was at this place and I was sad and I was scared. Yeah, and I also knew there was nothing I could do in that moment. Um, so I said, okay. Okay, that simple word turned Meg's life around as she began her long and difficult journey to a new life free from addiction. Mehek remembers the first time she admitted she had a problem versus simply knowing there was a problem. They told me, the counselor, I remember him quite clearly. He was a slightly bigger man with curly, curly hair. Um, and he said to me, he said to me, Mehek, you, I think you have a problem. He said, it sounds to me 
like you have an addiction. And he says that you won't be able to use drugs and alcohol safely ever again. And then he handed me over a few books, and the one on top was the Narcotics Anonymous basic text, they call it. Um, and it was this thick blue book. And, and you know, when he said this to me, I was like, I, I don't understand <laughs> what you're saying. Um, I don't understand what you're saying. I don't get it. What, what do you mean? And he said, read this book. And, uh, and, if, and during the next few days, I opened that book. And wow, uh, it was the first time I felt like my thoughts were written down on a piece of paper. And I couldn't understand how that could be the case. But I felt, I felt like for the first time, I, I was understood. What I was experiencing was written in this book. I related to it. It was simple to understand. Um, and then there was, it was just this, it was such a gift. It felt like a little glimmer of hope of, wow, there is something out there that gets me and understands me. And what is this thing they're talking about? What is going on? It, it was a long process. <laughs> and what I thought was like a small problem with marijuana. When I look back and I wrote down the story of the last, you know, seven, seven, ten years, I saw that, wow, actually, I started using drugs really young. And what I had done was that I'd switched from one to the next and then on to another. And each time I did that, I thought it was something completely different. I didn't realize that all these events were this, were part of the same chain, were a stream of the same of the same experience of switching from one thing to the next. And so, yeah, the early days were a lot about accepting, oh, accepting that I had I had a history of drug use, um, and that what what I had been doing was not helping me. Mac was in rehab for seven and a half months and continued living in the same town for another year to complete her treatment. She's been in recovery for seven years now, and we asked her what she thought may have caused her addiction. <laughs> Through the research I've done and the information I resonate with most, um, it's the current understanding is that it seems that it had something to do with with trauma, something to do with not being comfortable with or happy with way the way that things were for me. And as I look back and as I look through the lessons I've learned in recovery, that has a lot to do with um, how, how I manage my mind, my thoughts, and how I understand and care for my emotions. So as a kid, there was a lot of loneliness. There was a lot of fear. Um, you know, I had some really insular behaviors. I didn't have a very optimistic perspective on what life had to offer. I, I definitely had that inclination. Um, you know, I was told, I had been told that drugs were bad. I didn't have a lot more information than that. My first encounter with them was quite short, um, quite safe. Um, so my experience 
Even though I was, I was told that drugs were bad, my experience of it wasn't that way. And, and that, that resonated a lot more truthfully with me at the time. There isn't one answer as to what causes addiction. There are so many variables. Genetic disposition, one's mindset, the environment, and so many more. On the one hand, there is a lack of education about drugs and its effects, while on the other, there is a perception created about the most common drug, alcohol. Often to a point, one faces a social burden of alcohol consumption. I feel sad on, um, on the perception that alcohol has. Uh, I feel like it's really well marketed. It's marketed as something really fun and adventurous and cool and outgoing. Um, and personally, I feel like, you know, especially with my experience, I feel like it's something that actually like hinders human potential. I feel like it's something that weakens our bodies. It makes our minds fuzzy. It makes our emotions less easy to understand. It makes us less authentic, less efficient, less healthy, and less ultimately less happy in the world. That's my experience of it. And the most important factor that has helped Mehek stay in recovery for the past few years is one of the tools that worked for her and even helped her find her greatest gift. Um, so one of the tools I, I do use is a 12-step program. Um, and I was introduced I was introduced to that in rehab. Uh, and it's it's really it's one of the most proven ways that people recover from addiction. It's, it's become a regular part of my life today. Uh, and and I guess recovery from addiction has opened up like a world to spirituality that I wasn't expecting. Um, in my own experience, if I didn't, if I wasn't forced to try on honesty and be really good and really nice to other people, I don't think I would have done it. I'm not like being altruistic isn't that fun. It isn't that attractive on the surface. Um, and what's really sold is personal achievement and material success. And if I had any other journey, I think that's what I would be doing. Um, so today that's my gift. Today that's my biggest gift. Um, this is the foundation I live my life on. And uh, I'm sure other people get it in other ways. While the person may be an addict, it becomes a situation that almost always extends itself to the family too. Families have to find a way to deal with the person they love without losing their sanity or enabling the addiction. Here's Mehek's advice to you if you are dealing with a loved one who's stuck in this disease. So I think the first thing I would say is um, look for the similarities in, in your loved one or whoever you're worried about. Um, more than the differences. I know for my parents, drugs were not a part of their experience or part of their story. Um, and that was really scary for them. And I, well, I understand. It's really scary for them, especially this little human being that they created, doing something that is said to be really dangerous and harmful, and they don't understand, and they have no control or power over what's going on. It's absolutely terrifying. 
Uh, people who are in addiction can be extremely frustrating um, and hard to deal with. Like there, like for me, I, there was it was like I was torn. Like this one part of me wanted help, wanted to get better, and the other part was completely fighting and trying to push it away. And so, if, if something's going on, they don't understand. Um, then, then so then something someone who's helping another with any difficult situation can do is get more information and knowledge and understanding. And is if there's something they don't know, then a really like humble, mature action step or solution to that is to ask for help. Ask doctors, ask professionals, ask people who are experts in the field. Get knowledge, get understanding, get information. How can I help someone? So be loving and available for when they ask for help. Be there with open arms when they come, and if they're disrespectful or hurtful, then draw a boundary and take care of yourself. Because if you're not well, you can't help anyone else. And listen in if you are that person who's currently walking the mile that Mahek did. I would say um, that you are not a bad person. You're not a bad person. You're not intrinsically damaged. This is not the end of the road. It doesn't have to be.、Um, it may feel like there's no choice. However, that's not true. There is a lot of work that it would take if you want things to be different. It is gonna take. A desire, a willingness, and a lot of effort on your part. If you want your life to be different,、um, I do want you to know that it doesn't have to be this way, <clears throat> and the solution is always available and always open.、Um, if you want it, whether you want it today or you have to go through some more pain and come back to it later, there's no judgment. There's open arms. You will be welcomed, and you will receive the gifts if you take the daily action to do it. As for Mahek, she's found her path helping others find their better versions, while she continues to maintain and build her life. She knows now she is better than the worst mistake she's made. I'm really proud of who I am today.、Um, yeah, and I do love. I do love many parts of myself. I do love, wow, myself so much more than I used to.、Um, let's see. I think part of that is I've made peace with with what happened. I've made peace with that I had I've had a journey of addiction. I have experience with addiction. This is addiction is an ongoing part of my life. Um, that I, you know, that I, I confront every day. I take care of every day.、Um, it's part of my experience. I definitely made peace with that. I made peace with my journey and what happened. And yeah, I can 
forgive myself for many parts of that. Um, as a human being, as a human being, there's, yeah, there's definitely things I've done as a teenager and, you know, other parts of my life that, that I'm learning to forgive and find acceptance around. George Orwell said, happiness can exist only in acceptance. And we hope Mehek has found that happiness too. I'm Nanora. And I'm Bettina. Thank you for joining us today. And we hope you will help the voices of our guests be heard by sharing this episode with your family and friends. We can be found wherever you listen to your podcasts. Just look for NRI Woman. To learn more about our guests, please visit our website, www.nriwoman.com. If you or someone you know has a story to share, please get in touch with us at hello at nriwoman.com or tweet us at nri underscore woman. You can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook at NRI Woman Podcast. Our featured podcast promo is Shamble Fest Pod, a podcast hosted by Jess and Amber Thay, our WTF news and current events comedy podcast, who cover everything from weird and funny news to cryptozoology, paranormal, true crime, pretty much anything they find entertaining and fun. They drop episodes on Monday and you can find them anywhere you listen to our podcasts. Hey! Welcome to ShambleFest! I'm Jess. I'm Amber. And we are your one-stop weekly shop for news shambles. We're a weekly WTF and current events comedy podcast. We drop episodes every Monday morning. Tune in. Shamble on! This episode was edited by Deepthi Shibish. New episodes come out every Monday. Make sure you subscribe. Until next time, keep learning, keep inspiring, and be kind. Next week on NRI Woman, and don't let that curiosity fade as you get, you know, into your teenage and, and um, adult age years. Just don't let that curiosity fade, whether it be about computers or whether it be about space, anything. Just keep asking questions. That's, that's what makes us humans.